Take your Bibles, please, and join me. Taking your Bibles, and we're going to 1 John. 1 John. While you're turning there, if you have a piece of paper with you, maybe it's a sermon notes or something else, pull one out. I want to give you a little bit of a quiz here this morning. You want to write down your answers. I'm going to put the questions up on the board. And when I put them up, I don't want you to answer out loud so that everybody hears. I want you to write your answers down, and then we'll go through after we've given you a couple of minutes of writing down your answers. Then we'll give the answers out loud. So if you can just restrain yourself from sharing your knowledge with everybody, okay? Let's just start off. I'm going to put them up here. You take a little bit of time and write down your answers quickly on these riddles. Here we go. There's your questions. You can consult with a wise person next to you if you need some help. These are not life-changing questions, trust me. Before Mount Everest was discovered, what was the highest mountain in the world? What month has 28 days? What's full of holes but can still hold liquid? On which side of the chicken is there more feathers? What is always coming but never arrives? What has an eye but cannot see anything at all? If two is company and three is a crowd, what do four and five make? Forwards, I'm heavy. Backwards, I'm not. What am I? Which word in the dictionary is always spelled wrong? What starts with E, ends with E, and has only one letter in it? You own it, but it is often used mostly by others. What am I? Now, for you wondering why I'm doing that, this is being recorded. So those who aren't seeing it, they have an idea what you're doing. Got all your answers already? Yes? No? I know you're smart, so I'm assuming that you only need a few more seconds. So we see, did some of you start from the bottom and go up? Then we get it all covered. Let's do it. Before Mount Everest was discovered, what was the highest mountain in the world? Oh, you see how smart you are. One month has 28 days. Oh, there you go. What's full of holes but can still hold liquid? Oh, some of you said it, a sponge. Which side of the chicken is there more feathers? There you got it. What is always coming but never arrives? Yep, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you, tomorrow. What has an eye but can't see anything at all? There's a couple possibilities here. Hurricane, yeah, there you go, needle or hurricane. If two is company and three is a crowd, what do four and five make? Yeah. <laughs> Forwards I'm heavy, backwards I'm not. What am I? I am ton. Backwards I'm not, forwards I'm heavy, ton. Oh yeah, oh, I knew it all along. <laughs> Which word in the dictionary is always spelled wrong? Wrong. wrong. Okay. What starts with E, ends with E, and usually has only one letter? I knew it all the time, yeah. What is you owned by you but mostly used by others? Your name. Your name. Okay, so those are the silly ones. Let me ask you the one that can't be silly. We can't be, we can't be stupid with this one. This question is one that has to be asked. Am I really saved or am I on my way to hell? 
It's a question that, for me, was asked of an individual talking to me in 1973. My mom first heard it in that January 3rd. Two days later, she got saved. And then we shared the gospel within our household, and a few months later, then I responded to it. And yet, there was a question, there was doubts in my mind, even after I did that. There was a period of time, sometimes weeks, sometimes months later, where I doubted, am I really saved? Then I heard preachers talking, and the preachers made the comment that if you don't remember the exact day and hour of when you got saved, you're not saved. And then I heard some preachers say, if you didn't realize this at the moment that you got saved, such as the doctrine of, you know, uh, the doctrine of the uh, sin, uh, the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ being, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, then you can't be saved. And they added different doctrines and different things. And I started wondering, I started doubting as a teenager, you know, am I really saved? So my wife went through the same thing. She grew up in a Bible-believing church, was in church from two weeks old on. And she said even though she prayed to get saved when she was a preschooler, when she got to be a teenager, the question was, I don't remember what I prayed. Did I understand everything? I don't remember exactly what the setting was. I, I, am I saved? I don't know how much I understood. How do I know if I'm really saved? Now, the majority of you have probably never had those doubts. The majority of you may have never had those struggles, but some of us did. And there are some here that still do. I know that. I've talked to some who are still saying, I've grown up and I've been in this church and other church all my life, but sometimes I wonder, am I really saved? Am I, am I you know, a child of God? I still struggle with lots of things. Our own granddaughter, who's in this church, ever since she's entered into this life, this has been her church home. And this, a couple of years ago, she prayed. She asked Jesus Christ to be her Savior. Oh, man, she was excited. She was thrilled at that day that she got saved, and she made sure she told us. But then the next day, she disobeyed again. And her first reaction, because she had told us, I asked Jesus to take away my sins. And then what happened? The next day she sinned. And her immediate reaction was, it didn't work. Because in her mind, when she asked Jesus to take away the sins, she meant forever and ever. So is it possible there are some here who are confused? who are wondering about if I'm really saved? If you're not wondering about that, maybe let me encourage you, stop and reconsider and examine your life. Because in the Bible, it says that there are going to be many people who stand before the Lord, and they are going to say, Lord, Lord, have not we done these things? Let me read you the text that proves that many people think they are saved, say they are saved, But the reality is, they're not. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus wrote these words, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have have we not cast out devils in thy names? And in thy name have done wonderful works, but I will profess unto them. He says, Depart from me, I never knew you. There is the possibility that people in a church like this are saying that they're on their way to heaven, but they really aren't. 
The Bible teaches that religious people, even some who are active in ministry, demons and dealing with praying, that they aren't really saved. In fact, in the Word of God, Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 18, and he challenges his disciples, you have to have a faith of a child. You need to be converted by it like a little child and have that total dependence We read where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and he writes to a church group, and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you, unless, of course, you failed his test? So he's encouraging the Corinthians to periodically test themselves. In 1 John chapter 2, he is writing to a group of believers. We think it's the church of Ephesus. And as he's writing, if you notice in chapter 2, jump down to verse 3, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he goes on, he says, he that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Ponder that. Think of what he's pointing out. There are people that he's writing to who keep on saying over and over and over again, I know Christ. I know I'm saved. I have known him, and I continue to know him. But John says, this person is a liar. This person isn't telling the truth. The truth is not in him. And he repeats this thought several times, that people are claiming to be believers, but in reality they're not. That is a major theme of the book. And so he's writing this epistle to a church group, to people gathered like this, and 40 times he says, here's how you can, or 40 times he mentions the idea of knowing for sure. Being convinced in your heart, not just in your head, but just here's how you have proof that you really are a born-again believer. And as he's going through it, he is making this observation that it's not by based on what you say, it's not based on who you hang around with only, It's based upon some other facts, facts or evidences that come up in your life. That that somehow, some way, if you are born again, these are going to be manifested in your life. What are these? What are these evidences? You know, somebody can say they're healthy, but if their heartbeat is way wacky, they're not healthy. Somebody can say that they're doing okay, but if all of a sudden their blood pressure is all over, their sugar count is all over, they're not really healthy. Somebody might say, I'm a believer. I I go to church. I memorize scripture. But are you really? What is the proof? What are the life evidences? What are the body signs? And there are several in this epistle that are very important for the teenager, for the young adult who says, I just don't know, I have doubts. For the individual who says, you know, I go to church, I'm good enough. That person needs to get born again. For those of you who are like me, like my wife, that you had battles, I want you to be convinced from Scripture that even though Satan attacks and creates doubts, that you can say, thus saith the Lord, here's how I know that I am on my way to heaven, even though I still battle and struggle. There are six telltale signs given in this epistle. This epistle talking about knowing. Here's the first one that comes out. That's worth observing. Ask yourself the question, do you want 
to obey God's Word. I didn't say, do you always obey God's Word? Because that's a struggle. But from John's writing, it's do you want to obey God's Word? That's what he just wrote about. Where we read in, verse, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, Hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that says, I know Him, and keeps not His commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in Him. But whoso keeps His Word, in Him verily is the love of God being perfected. Hereby know that we are in Him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Obedience. God never freed us from all rules and regulations when we got saved. He freed us from the Old Testament, Levitical rules and regulations. But when God saved us, he didn't say, go and live any old way you want. God gave a display, a multitude of different commands that we're supposed to obey. And these are commands that we believers are to do. One of the commands, Acts chapter 10, is get baptized to confess your faith. One of the commands is to pray. One of the commands is to forgive. One of the commands is to worship. One of the commands is to confess your sins. Commands to love your wives. To Commands to obey your parents. To train up your children. There's multiple commands for us. Even as believers... Now, those obedience to those commands doesn't produce us getting saved, but these are to be a result of our getting saved. We want to obey God. We want to do what He says. Do we struggle? Well, the Apostle Paul, after 30 years of being born again, writes in Romans chapter 7, the things which I want to do, I don't do. The things which I don't want to do, I do. He says, there is this matter that I'm battling constantly, and who shall deliver me from this body of death? It's a battle. You're going to have a battle. We're all going to have a battle until we get perfected, until we get into heaven. But what is the general tenor of your heart's desire? Do you want to obey God? Is there a desire in your life to be like Jesus Christ? To walk as He walked? He says that this is an evidence that if you are truly born again, there is a normal, natural, genuine desire to obey God. I'm not saying perfection, but is there a desire in your heart to obey God? Is there a desire enough that you seek to obey God? That you attempt to obey God? That you give effort to obeying God and His words? That is one of the life signs to prove whether or not you are a real child of God. You want to obey Him. You try to obey Him. There's a second one. A second evidence that's given in that same chapter that he goes on, he talks about. And in this same chapter, he's going to talk about the idea of how do you treat other believers. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, the thing which is true in him and in him. And in you, because the darkness is past, the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness, even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knoweth not whither he goes, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest. Go down to the end of the verse. He says that neither uh, he says that one that doesn't do righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loves not his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. 
not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, his brothers were righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. I can't make it any clearer than what he's just said. And there are lots of passages that talk about how this love is supposed to be portrayed in your life. This love is going to come out where you esteem one another, where you pray for one another, where you comfort one another, where you edify one another, where you're having ministry to one another, where you're trying to help one another, assist one another, be hospitable to one another, receive one another. Multiple different ideas of how you are loving in action. Not just in words, but in action, trying to reach out and minister to other born-again believers. And so we know that this is something that God commanded Jesus, in his last night with the disciples, he says, A new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you minister, that you help, that you reach out. And so when John is writing years later, and he's writing this epistle, he is trying to make it as clear as possible that this is going to be a normal, natural response of those who are truly born again. They will want to help, to assist, to love, to act in a way that is loving towards other believers. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that love is born, loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. And so he's making it very clear. If God is living within you, you have a natural inclination to be loving towards other believers. That's because this is God's love towards you, being perfected, being portrayed. Verse 19 of chapter 4. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? If you're harboring anger and bitterness and angst towards somebody, examine your heart. Are you in the faith? If you are content to be miserable and selfish, are you in the faith? And so he's making it very clear that we're supposed to be engaging other believers. If we're truly born again, we're going to want to be around other believers because we enjoy their company. We connect with them. Have you ever had this happen where you meet total strangers, but you feel a spiritual connection to them? And you get in conversation to find out what was this connection they're born again to. He says that's a natural thing that then you feel an attraction, a, a, a comfortableness. And he says, so what do you do with it? Do you have a genuine desire that you put effort to where you want to encourage, you want to help other believers? Do you have this, this idea in your heart that I want to use what gifts God has given me to help out? other believers. That's a natural thing. But if church is just, I'm going to come, do my obligation, and then vacate as quickly as possible and hope that Wayne doesn't speak beyond 1130, which is a miracle if that ever happens. Okay, never happens. If, if you have this desire that this, this fellowship is just a chore, this getting around believers is a pain in the neck. This is a challenge and this is something horrible and I can't stand being in this group. Check whether you're really in the faith. Because the evidence is you're not healthy. Something's wrong. 
So where are you genuinely? And if you're saying, well, I I don't remember, well, then let's put this all in perspective. Chapter 2 says that if you don't have a desire to help, he says, you're not saved because he goes on, he says, in chapter 2, which we read a few moments ago, he said that they're a liar, that they're not in the truth, that they're blind, they're in darkness. He's, they don't see the dangers. They're like Cain. They don't realize the bitterness that is growing within him. He's making it very clear that what you'll do is you'll hurt others. But if you're a true believer, you are concerned you don't hurt other believers. You are concerned that you, you, don't, you, you don't offend. You are concerned about your testimony to others. You're not so self-centered that it's all about me. That I want, when I come to worship, I want people to pamper me but you have more of a desire as how can I minister to others? So you ask yourself these questions. And the conclusion is, we need to be like this fella who two, two strangers walking down in this dark street. They saw this guy coming towards them with a lantern. As they got closer, the guy has got a white cane in his hand, which means he's blind. And they were dumbfounded. And they said, sir, is this a mistake? The white cane, you're blind. You know, why are you walking with a lantern? And he says, oh, the lantern's not for me. It's for others that I don't trip them up. They don't run into me. That's the heart of a genuine believer, is automatically concerned about others even though it may infringe upon you. You do the extra effort. So you ask and say, is this in my life? By the way, if there is a desire to obey, if there is a desire to want to care and to be in fellowship with other believers and to help other believers, then you have the evidences. You have the vital signs that you're born again. If not, then you're in trouble. Number three, you should ask yourself this question. Do, what do I really, really like to do? Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This is the one that many of you have memorized. Where he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of God, not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world passes away in lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. And so the command in this verse, literally, where it says, love not the world, he's talking, he's saying, hey, you who are believers, stop it. Stop. Stop. This is not to be, this isn't a part of your life. Now, the warning is this, can we still be attracted to the world? Yes. Can we still be attracted to get monies and cars and position and possessions? Sure. And none of those things are evil in and of themselves. That's not what he's saying in this text. But can the love of money become the root of all evil in your life? Yeah. Yeah. And so he's warning these believers, and he's talking about the world. And just in case if there's a young person here who doesn't understand what he's talking about, he's not talking about planet Earth, the physical Earth, that we need to be so nature-minded that we become silly. He is saying the world system the arrangement. What is the philosophy? What is the goals? What is the the idea here? And he emphasizes three different aspects. He says, this is what we're supposed to be staying away from. This is not to be our goal in our life. The lust of the flesh, that is, whatever feels good, do. 
that philosophy that says there are no limits, there are no boundaries. If I love, anything goes. If I want it, it's mine. That he describes, that lust of the flesh. And he says there is a moral code. There is a standard of of righteousness. And we're supposed to say no at times to our desires. He says as well, the lust of the eyes, what is that? It's that idea of, I want it. if, If I see it, I should get it. Uh, I, whatever looks good, a-okay to me. And then he talks about this idea of the pride of life. That pride of life, there's just so much here. Pride of life is I've got to be noticed. The pride of life is I, I've got to, you know, my goal in life is to make sure that people approve and give accolades. Pride of life is this idea I've got to do better than others. I've got to have status. I've got to have position. All of this together... When he says about this love of the world, how do you summarize all of that? It is living for self. It's all about me and what I want. It's about me having my rights, my stuff. If that is your pattern, if that is your philosophy that you're living by, you're not living by God's pattern and God's philosophy. We're not supposed to be all about us. In fact, as believers, we're supposed to be putting others first. We're to be denying ourselves. We're to be picking up our cross and following him. We are to die to self. For me to live is Christ, not me. And so he's saying this is what is in a true believer. A true believer is one that isn't selfish. It isn't about this only. And he gives reasons why. That this world is is not to be our goal to get, to have, to be seen. Why not? Because he says that this system is not of God. He says that this system and all of its stuff, it's not going to last. It's going to be gone. Within within years, most of the stuff is gone anyway. He says as well that that this means that you are on the opposite side of God. In James 4, he says, he, he that has friendship with the world is at enmity with God on the other side. Now, is he saying we have to go and live like monks or, you know, in a monastery? And No, he's not saying possessions are wrong. He's not saying that having and eating good food is wrong. He's not saying that having a nice hairdo or having hair is, you know, is wrong. He's not saying jewelry is wrong. He's not saying a nice house is wrong. But the love of those things, that being your greatest motivation, that's where it becomes a difficulty. That's where it becomes, are you a believer? Believers, they respond by saying, wait a minute. The reason that God has left me here is to serve him. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are right up. Where? Beyond the blue. So you ask yourself these questions, okay? And as a teenager who was struggling, these were good questions for me to ask. Go, hey, do I have a desire to obey God? Yeah. Do I do it 100%? No, but I have a desire and I make effort. Do I like being around Christians? Yeah, I really did. I thought church and Bible study and being around believers was the cat's meow that that was really a good thing. What about this idea of loving the world? 
Did I struggle with putting away the cussing, the cursing, the drinking, all that other stuff? Yeah. But there was this gradual growth that said, what I want to do more than anything is I want to make sure that I glorify God in my body, which is not my own, but it belongs to God. That is what he's saying in this text is normal for believers. Believers, they want to be like Christ. Number four, you ask yourself, this this is such a potent question. What do you do with sin? What about you and sin? Okay, we know that according to 1 John chapter 1, he says... In 1 John chapter 1, verse, nine, verse 8 and 9, he says, If we say that we have absolutely no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so what he has stated already in this book is, do believers come to a point where they're sinlessly perfect? while they're living on this world. No. No. That's not the, that is not a reality. We are still going to have some struggles. And so we do sin, but when we sin, what should be our desire? To confess it. To go to Him, even though we're not punished for our sin anymore and eternal damnation, we should have a desire to go to God and to get cleansed and to confess it to make it right, and then what to do in the future. Stop repeating that sin. That's what he's talking about here in this passage of 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, jump over there, he is talking about the believers and what do they do on a regular basis when it comes to habitual sin. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself over and over again, even as Jesus is pure. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides in him doesn't perpetually, continuously live in sin. Whosoever sins over and over and over and over is the way that the original language is, habitually. Has not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that perpetually, continually, over and over and over and over, commits the same sins is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy, render powerless the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not habitually, continually stay in the same sin. For his seed remains in him. That's the Holy Spirit remains in you. And he cannot habitually remain in sin without conviction and the desire to forsake it. Because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil. Which one's which? Whosoever does not righteousness on a habitual, regular basis is not of God. Does it make sense? What he's talking about in this is that you and I struggle with sin. But we shouldn't be comfortable and be glad and sit in habitual sin 
whether it be you name it. He says that if you are comfortable and craving and hanging on to habitual sin, check whether you're in the faith. A true believer is one who is wanting to grow out of that sin, will confess that sin, will try to become more like Christ. They don't want to habitually be an individual that's overcome by that, and I'm going to use the word loosely, that addiction of lust, that addiction of anger, that addiction of vengeance, that addiction of greed, that, that idea that it's their lifestyle of being one who is miserable, cantankerous. The Spirit of God's going to deal with you. If you're living in habitual sin, the Spirit of God's going to correct you. He's going to chasten you. If there is no chastening, you're not one of God's children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. God doesn't chasten those who are not His children. So you have to examine and say, okay, I'm not perfect, but am I growing where I'm overcoming sins in my life? Am I growing where I'm saying I don't want to keep on hanging on to that? Is there change? Is there growth? Is there righteousness? Is there more Christlikeness developing in my life as I go through? Am I getting rid of that cussing? Am I getting rid of that anger? Am I getting rid of that greed? Am I getting rid of those lusts? Are they becoming where... where there is less challenge, less difficult. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. And when I do it, do I sense the, the spirits convicting me and drawing me back to wanting to confess? And so he makes it clear. He says there's a natural desire to overcome sin in your life, to become more pure. Is that true in your heart? And again, we're not talking perfection. But is there a natural persistence to become more pure? Is there effort being made towards that? And so in the text, he's very pointed. He's saying that if you are living in sin and you are comfortable and you come and play church on Sunday, but you go right back to a sinful lifestyle and it doesn't bother you, you're probably not one of God's children. And he challenges us. He says, hey, listen, you can overcome because Satan has already been defeated. He's powerful, but Jesus already kicked him in the chops. He's, he's rendered him toothless, this roaring lion, that he can't have victory. You can have victory over it. And you say in your heart, I want to live pure. Why? Because of the love of God for me. I want to live pure because Jesus Christ died for my sins. Why do I want to keep on committing that same old, same old? You want to live more pure because Jesus could come back any moment. You don't want to be caught doing that stuff. So he's made it clear. He says there are clear evidences in your life that show, that indicate, are you truly born again? It's not perfection. But it's a persistent desire that says, I love, persistent, I want to obey, I want to get rid of sin in my life, I want to glorify God. This is a growing natural appetite in my life. Let me give you a fifth one, a fifth vital sign. What do you do with truth? This is not one that I went, the last time we ever discussed this was five years ago in a message. And I didn't include this one. 
But in studying through the text, this one is really important that I didn't see the emphasis in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. Because many false prophets are gone into this world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come. And even now is already in this world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What in the world is he talking about? He's making it very clear in this text that there's different teachers going about. You know that. You understand that. There's different churches you can go to. There's different radio, TV preachers you can listen to. Some he qualifies and puts in the category of Antichrist. Some, he says, are teaching the truth. The ones that he questions in this text are more blatant. They are those who question Jesus who present Jesus as not God. And there's a whole group of churches doing this anymore. There's a whole group of churches that are saying Jesus never really came in the flesh. Jesus never really died, buried, and resurrected. He's just a good example. He's just a good guy. He's just a, you know, a hyperhuman, but he wasn't God. And he's saying those are the spirit of Antichrist. And if you're following that, you're not following truth. He's making it very clear. And so he says, they, those who are of the truth, they believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who has come to this earth to die, bury, and resurrect for me, for you, for each one of us. And those people not only believe that about Jesus, but they keep on wanting to hear more about him. Heareth has the idea of keeping on wanting to learn more, to understand more. So the question is, what do you do with truth? For instance, we can apply it this way. What do you do, what have you done with Jesus? Have you come to a place where you recognize not just here, but here, that you believe in your heart, Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came and really was God in the flesh who died for you? and then buried and rose again, ascended on high. What have you done with Jesus? If you are at the point where you just say, well, I, I think he's a historical character. I think that Jesus was a good guy. But I've never really pondered him. I haven't thought about him a whole lot. You should examine your heart, whether you're in the faith. Going to church, just sitting around people is not enough just being able to access a Bible on your phone while somebody's preaching and to follow is not enough. You need to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died, buried, and resurrected for you. So what have you done with truth? But let's expand it where John expanded it. He says not only the truth about Jesus, but what about the rest of the truth that's being taught? Are you hearing the rest of the Word of God? Is there a desire to know the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, to read the Word of God? 
Is there a natural inclination that says, I want to be taught the Word of God? He's making it very, a clear statement. There are many people who gather in churches who do it just because it's the thing to do. They come because mom and dad make them come, or their, their spouse expects them, or whatever. And he says, no, no, those who are in the faith are those who individually, personally, they want to hear the Word of God. They have a craving for the Word of God. They, they want to enjoy being in the Word of God. Do you remember what Jesus says? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is saying that for the believer, there is a natural hunger for wanting to be in truth. Exposed to it, eating it, reading it. What about you? What do you do with God's truth? The final sign that I want to share with you is this. Do you have any answers to prayer that you can point to? Specific answers to prayer. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Jump down where he says in this text, and this is the part you know, these things have we written unto you that believe, verse 13, on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? God's invited us to pray. We know that. That's the confidence we have. We can go and pray to the Father. We understand that. And he says, And we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, if we know that we have the petitions that we have that we desire of him. The believer has this knowledge that God will answer his prayer because God is our Father. We're his child. And he's talking in this text as if you're doing it. It's assumed that you're praying. It's not commanded. It's just assumed that God is going to give you answers to prayer if you are his child. So we ask you the question, do you have answers to prayer? Can you point to specific instances where you have been praying about something in particular, personal to you, and God has answered that prayer? So you look and put this together and say, okay, this is evidence that I'm a child of God. Do I have some answers to prayer? Do I have this love for the brethren? Do I have a desire to learn the Word of God? Do I have a desire to obey God? Do I have a desire to glorify God more than anything else? Now, we're not perfect, but are these generally true in your life? If so, you're a child of God. If not, something's wrong. And what has to happen is you have to take an honest test. You can't look at somebody else's paper. You can't rely upon mom and dad. You have to ask yourself personally, what is in my heart? What is in my life? What am I like? What do I love? What do I want in this life? Do I love God's word? Do I love God's people? And an honest evaluation and say to yourself, okay, I don't want to deceive myself. I want to honestly look at God's word and see, is this normal in my life? Is there a growing normalcy in my life in these areas? And if not, then you need to respond by being born again. Genuinely, pray, and it doesn't make a difference what you prayed in the past. 
if there wasn't real repentance and understanding of real desire to be born again, then you need to do it. But if you did get born again and you see this growth in your life, then the Word of God is indicating that you're saved. Now, I know there's churches around this area that would say, but you can lose it again. Once you get it, God might be upset with you and take it away. Tonight, I'm going to deal with that one. Getting a grip on assurance. And what does the Bible say about that? Which you need to know. Because you work with people in this community. You go to school with people in this community that are being taught that their salvation is not forever. They are, they are absolutely... Some are just so concerned and live in a life of guilt and fear. You need to know the truth. You know, I'm the weird one here. I'm, we saw this past week in the world around us how the world reacts when there's a tragedy, even in a football game. Did you notice how the world panicked? I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for somebody whose heart stops in a game. You pray for him? Yes? 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 Okay. Which was the right thing to do, right? We're concerned. But listening to interview after interview after interview of people saying, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know where to go. As a child of God who has confidence of what's next, We don't have to act in such a panic, in such a fear. When my wife was in the hospital with somebody with COVID, they were absolutely terrified of the COVID and what could happen. Why? They had no peace with God. You who are God's children can have that peace, that confidence. But you've got to make sure you line up with the vital signs of Scripture. Father, help us here to be sincere and serious about these ideas that we can know for sure we're on our way to heaven, not because of our goodness, but because of your grace. And Father, if there's any one, two, three, four who have doubts, help them to take care of them. Even right now while I am praying, Father, please work in their hearts. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Pianist is just playing through a song. If you are here and you have doubts, please, let's settle them. At the right side of the auditorium, our staff is waiting to talk with you, men with men, ladies with ladies. Go over there. Go over there and talk right now. Settle this. Make sure by the Word of God. As we stand to close in prayer, if anybody wants to step aside, do so. But let's stand and make it easier for them. Father, Thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the simplicity of the Word of God. And though this did not apply directly to the majority of people here, I pray that they would take these truths and use them to help friends and family and neighbors to share the Word of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.